I'd like to offer some reflections this evening with regard to what it means to to come to, to understand the end of separation. The experience that for many of us can bring us to meditation practices, the ways in which we feel a sense of suffering, of dissatisfaction, disconnection in life, uh, looking for or uh, an absence of a, a deeply felt sense of something truly fulfilling or meaningful. And the experience of what we call suffering or what we encounter and know as a as a lack of deep fulfillment has very much to do with the experience of and the way we create a sense of separation, <coughs> a way in which we tend to see and perceive ourselves and things as completely removed from each other. And really at the very heart of the Dharma teachings, at the very heart of the awakening we seek to embody in our practice is the understanding of a non-separateness, the capacity that we have as human beings to wake up to how things truly are and to, to see through the appearance of separation, to, to really penetrate to the underlying nature of things in which separation is dissolved. So as we engage in the practices that we've been engaged in here, sitting, standing, walking, allowing ourselves to settle more and more deeply into the actual experience, into what's happening moment by moment, one thing we can start to become aware of or sense and become sensitive to is a certain softening of the boundaries we more commonly or habitually tend to perceive or relate in terms of. So we might notice that when we started paying attention to the breath, it's very much a sense of sort of different pieces. There's the in-breath and there's the out-breath and maybe there's this part of the body breathing but there isn't that part of the body experiencing the breathing. And maybe there's a little space between the in-breath and the out-breath. But they sort of seem to be like we're dealing with these discrete little pieces of experience and we're encouraged to notice them, to feel into them, to get to know them directly. And as we do this, what starts to happen is the sense of this experience and then that experience, in-breath, out-breath, slowly starts to reveal itself as something fluid as something which flows, and of course breathing does flow. The medium of air is a fluid medium. And the experience of our body drawing in the breath and releasing it is a fluid process. 
As we become more sensitive, as our attention becomes more subtle, we can sometimes notice that the sense of it being located here and not there within our body starts to shift. And this fluidity of experience also starts to penetrate the totality of our physicality, our body. And sometimes we can sense it even beyond, in the very field of space around us from which the breath is drawn and to which the breath is released. We start to sense maybe that our body itself is is not so much a collection of pieces, but in fact there's something more whole in the nature of what it is. The tendency we have to think in terms of a sort of a a reductionistic um, perspective where we break things down into pieces in order to understand them. And seeing how many, you know, components everything has. There's a usefulness to this. We start to see how things work. But there's also a way in which the very experience of body starts to feel different to us. What it means to move, to walk, becomes more of a field, a vibration, a flow. And the, the very sense of what we're in contact with, equally, passes through this sort of range of experience in which initially we're just learning to pick out and connect with and touch into the different pieces. And just know, oh, it's this experience, it's that experience. And actually being able to distinguish them clearly is helpful to start disentangling from them and our reactions to them. And yet, as we go further into this process, what happens is not that the experiences somehow necessarily become more or absolutely distinct and separate, but something in them starts to show a commonality. There's a way in which the things that we experience flow more from one into the other. And some of you will speak about the walking meditation becoming something like where the steps flow. Or within one step, one feels the flow of a step. And in this, again, it it changes the way we're perceiving. It changes the way we're experiencing what's happening. Rather than discrete events or particular objects, what starts to happen is it's more like something in which there's a continuity, in which there's a fluidity, in which one thing is very clearly and indivisibly connected to, related to, not somehow distinguishable in absolute terms from whatever came before. Just as we notice that we experience conditions around us and they affect what arises within us. If we pay attention in this way, if we allow the tendency of the mind to fix things by putting labels and definitions upon them, when we put labels on things, it emphasizes that kind of discrete particularity. It's this. It's not that. But if we, if we actually step back from the labeling of the mind, the conceptual overlay, into the direct experience, it's not the way the language would suggest. 
It's in fact a fluid and dynamic process. And we can start to relax into that. We notice there's a certain, as we tune into that, there's a certain ease that might come of just allowing things to pass through, which we've been talking about and speaking about, and you've been sharing with us about how experiences pass, come, stay for a while, change, and disappear in many different ways. This theme comes again and again. Within our mind and our body too, we think of them, and uh, as Leela mentioned last night, we, we talk about them as separate. But in fact, they're very much influencing each other to the degree that at a certain point, one can't really say that they're separate. They're different expressions of something that is actually unified. And with that, if we look at our experience, if we really step back from the, the ideas we have about it, what we find is something where we can't really locate that which is here and that which is there in quite such absolute terms. There seems to be a locus or a focus of presence, of awareness, identity, we might say. And yet, the way that it's in relationship to the things around us, as we soften, as we open, as we allow ourselves to be intimate with the experiences, they kind of get in. Have you noticed that? That the experiences that seem to be out there get in. And we start to not have a sense so much that there's things going on out there. It's actually life going on in here. Touched by what appears to be out there, but not necessarily apart from it. With our minds, starting to see how the content of the mind, the thinking activity, is something conditioned, something created by causes, generated by contact with experience. And every thought, we start to see this over time, it arises in relationship to another experience. There's a sound and a thought, oh, I know that sound. Oh, I wonder what that sound is. There's a sensation. Oh, it's pleasurable. I like it. A lot of thoughts arise consequent upon another thought. So there's one thought and then another. And the first thought conditions the arising of the second. Oh, that's a bird. I like that bird. I like that sound. I remember when I heard that sound. I was walking down a lane with my teenage sweetheart. It was so lovely. We're filled with joy and elation. Sweet memory. Then we remember how that particular relationship ended up. And it's like, oh, oh. And, you know, and yet each moment is connected to the previous. There's a relationship. It's not a random event that's taking place. We might suddenly become conscious, feeling kind of miserable and wondering, how... Why am I feeling miserable? It's a sunny day. The birds are singing. I even remember a bird singing. And we realize, oh, 
Huh, there's a connection. It's like what we are experiencing and often taking ourselves to be is arising in a process. It's not a random process. And one of the features of the process is that way in which there's a a co-creating, a co-arising of experience. Now, within that, much of the thinking that takes place, much of what arises, isn't coming from where we're located. It's coming into where we're located. Now, it's obvious in a certain way with the physical senses. It's very clear. That sounds come from outside, it seems, although we hear them on the inside. Light comes from outside, although we actually form the image internally. And then imagine the image is out there. There isn't any image out there, actually. When we look out there and think there's something of an image or what we're seeing out there, it's very different what we see out there than what, for instance, a dog would see. Because a dog will mostly just distinguish everyone here by the smell. So it will see a collection of different configurations of smell sitting in the room in terms of not what it sees visually, but what it perceives as being here. At least as far as I understand. I actually don't know what it's like inside a dog's (laughs) mind. But that's what I understand in terms of its primary sensory references. So it's a very different world in one sense. And reflecting in that way, we get a sense of how This is something created. It's not inherent or intrinsic because the smells probably mingle with each other. And you can locate, if you're a dog, you locate the centre place with that smell and if one's owner is there, you'll know it very well. You can tell a lot about us. But the smells will probably waft around a bit more whereas when we look at each other with our eyes, we form these very firm boundaries. It's like there's this here and that there. And it gives a sense of very distinct entities. It's to do with very much a way we project into the world in our perception an underlying understanding, or underlying, not understanding, but really misunderstanding that we carry. So with the thinking mind, one thing that's interesting to notice is how much time we spend thinking about what other people are thinking about us. Have you noticed how much time we spend doing that? Now, there's a couple of useful reflections one can make with regard to this. And uh, one of them was a teacher who observed, I don't remember the name, um, said that we would spend a lot less time worrying about what other people are thinking about us if we realised how little time they spend doing it? (laughs) Because just like us, they're mostly thinking about themselves. Another teacher put it slightly differently and said... uh, What other people think of you is none of your business. (laughs) It's like, it's their business. It's their 
mind. And yet we need to take responsibility for the way in which our mental construction, the process of mentally constructing an image of how things are and projecting it into the world, how that affects the way we live, how that affects the world we live in. The sense of separateness is one of the key characteristics or elements of what arises out of a sense of fear and together with a sense of self. And so this sense of being separate is inevitably and always connected with fear. What we fear most is the sense of something other. And we, it seems, are dependent on being able to create a sense of something other in order to maintain the sense of what we take ourselves to be. It's actually really painful and scary to experience the sense of other. And yet, we're remarkably deeply attached to that. It's like we have a need to create a sense of other. And I was really struck by this in in a period of time when I was travelling in Asia and I was just getting a little bit of news now and then um, because there wasn't the the kind of the, the modern electronic media we have that lets you know everything all the time, even if you're in the middle of nowhere. And uh, hearing about the, the, trend, the, the changes in Eastern Europe and the, uh, the ending of the, the communist sort of regimes in many countries, the fall of the Berlin Wall, and this immense sense initially of, of relief that many people, I imagine, felt, and certainly I, of the sense of this, this conflict that seemed to be right there in the midst of the world and the planet and between our culture, it seemed, and another. That somehow it was like, this could come to an end. Perhaps that might not need to continue to be what's happening and dominating our world and our thoughts and our fears. And my... Father's family comes from Eastern Europe. So it's sort of like when you live in the West and some of you comes from the East. He left in the generation after the war. And that there's a sense of a relationship and yet a segregation. The sense of, ah, there could be some ending of that. There could be some ending of that. And that sense of otherness of the communist countries. You know, Romania, where my father's family, my father was born, his family are from. It's like this otherness. And yet, within, I would say, weeks, certainly not more than a few months of the fall of the Berlin Wall, I was really struck by the fact that the newspapers were starting to print stories. And I just get one every now and then, get, come to a city, find an English language newspaper somewhere, and have a look and see what's going on. I was struck by the articles that started to appear about... Islamic countries and Islamic culture. And something that was called Islam very quickly became, uh, and Islamic became Islamist. The transition from a culture to what was perceived as a threatening and opposed um, ideology. And the sense I had was very strong need somehow in a culture to have that which was other, that which was scary, 
that which was different from us. And the, the focus and where that went and the first Gulf War and everything that's been going on in that region for the last, I guess, 20-something 20, 20 years since then. In some ways I see that as an expression of the need for having other, something to fear, something to make, in a way, the enemy, or that which we're, in a way, identified by being not that. So we, in Western culture and media, there's a sense we have of bringing ourselves together and knowing who we are by being in oppositional relationship to something else. This plays out a very fundamental tendency and pattern we have within ourselves in which we take, or and we don't do it intentionally or necessarily consciously until we've really examined what's going on. We don't know this is happening. We're aspects of our inner experience which we actually find threatening to us, scary. We somehow encapsulate them. We make them other. We regard them as something that doesn't have to do with me, but has only to do with something outside of me. And classically, experiences of anger and hatred, these kind of strong and difficult experiences, which arise quite understandably and naturally in the context of harm, of danger, of threat, of conflict. We kind of separate or divide, split away and say, that's all out there, that stuff. And in here, what's in here, is none of that. And then we're afraid of it, where we see it in the world. So we make another culture, we make a certain pattern or tendency of human reactivity, something distant from us. And in it, there's this need and this holding on to a sense of being separate, being different than, being other than, that at one sense gives some degree of security and very strongly gives a sense of identity, of knowing who I am by knowing what I'm not. And yet within that, there's this incredibly painful experience of feeling, without quite knowing it, divided against our very self or divided within our very being within the very heart of what we are. Because we've, we've somehow created, we've established, we've reinforced, we've invested in the sense of being separate from, being other than, being different to. And so perhaps there's another way we could relate to these places that we see as other, different or scary within us, to these people, to those cultures, nations and regions that we might see as other, different or scary, threatening to us. This is from Rainer Maria Rilke. He writes... We have no reason to harbour any mistrust against our world, for it is not against us. 
It has, if it has terrors, they are our terrors. If it has abysses, these abysses belong to us. If there are dangers, we must try to love them. And if only we could arrange our lives in accordance with the principle that tells us that we must always trust in the difficult, then what now appears to us most alien will become our most intimate and trusted experience. How could we forget those ancient myths that stand at the beginning of all races? The myths about dragons that at the last moment are transformed into princesses. Perhaps all dragons in our lives are only princesses waiting for us to act just once with beauty and courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us is in its deepest essence something helpless that wants our love. I remember when I first read that passage feeling very touched by the, the understanding, particularly the image of the princesses and the dragons. And of course the the kind of way one tends to hear the fairy, st- fairy stories or the myths and that, it's like, you know, the, the hero, the prince, the knight, whoever, kills the dragon, saves the princess. And suddenly I was like, oh yeah, of course. What that's representing is something very different. It's that movement of courage and beauty and nobility represented by the knight or the noble woman whose quest is to actually face that which is scary, threatening, dangerous, which we call the dragon. And in meeting it in that spirit, something else is discovered. The transformation that we look for. The discovery of the, the precious beauty in the very midst of that which we may have feared. It's so painful to feel separate. This is really at the core, at the heart of what we struggle with, what we seek to come to the end of, to feel separate. And so this very experience is something we need to allow ourselves to explore. To not leave those places where we do feel fear or separation. Not to step away from them, to not reject them, because they're scary, uncomfortable, but to actually stay with them, to see what is it to really meet, to hold and to love the places where we feel most distant from ourself or another. That need, that longing for for connection, to be touched in our hearts by a, a sense, a resonance, a recognition of our of our intimacy with life and each other. This is something we we don't lose. Even in the places where we might not expect to find it, it shows up again and again. And there's a piece I'd like to read you by a, uh, a man by the name of Brandon Astor Jones. He wrote this letter on death row to a three-year-old girl Amelia. 
He says, Sensory deprivation can cause unusual, even strange responses. Prisoners are amongst the most deprived in all so-called civilised societies. As a consequence, in an effort to maintain sanity, prisoners create and develop a myriad of coping techniques. One of the ways I cope is to constantly be on the lookout for a shred of good in even the worst of daily prison experience. A task, I should add, that is not for the faint-hearted. For example, I love wood. And unless you like hanging out with a mop or a broom, there is little wood to be found in prison. So I began to compensate for the lack of access to wood by going to the visiting room as often as possible. You see, in the visiting room there are steel posts bolted to the floor. But on top of them are two-inch thick circles of wood that serve as stools. Touching that wood is good for my soul. Wood has always fascinated me. As I do not get very many visits, I had to develop lots of other wood strategies. I soon gathered up a bunch of wooden pencils. When you hold several wooden pencils in your hand, you have, albeit in a somewhat fractured way, a single piece of whatever you want to imagine it to be. Because I write a lot, it was not long before I'd worn all those pencils down to nubs. When I tried to purchase more of them, from the prison store, I learnt that for reasons not entirely clear to me, wooden pencils are no longer sold. It seems that plastic pencils are all they sell nowadays. Some time ago a cracked broom was sent into the cell block. When I accidentally dropped the broom while sweeping out cell 51, a small piece of wood broke away. I turned the broom in and went back to the cell. I picked up the small piece of wood, closed it tightly in my fist and sat down on the bunk. I saw myself in the mirror of my mind's eye and for a moment I felt like a crying infant whose parent had just shoved a pacifier into its mouth. That tiny piece of wood had brought a calm over the storm that was raging in my wood-deprived soul. Unfortunately, that calm did not last. For in less than a week during a routine cell search, a corrections officer found and confiscated my tiny wooden treasure. For three years after that I went without wood. Then one day they served spaghetti with the usual prison sauce poured over it. Undaunted in my never-ending quest for something good, even if it looks so bad I dare not eat it. I always stir around in whatever is served. You never know what you might find. It is not uncommon to find a toenail, cockroaches, rocks, or any kind of hair you can imagine. In that particular batch of sauce I found a bay leaf, but surprisingly nothing more. I picked it out, took it to the cell, washed it off, and placed it between two layers of waxed paper. Then I put it amid the pages of my heaviest book. That was over six months ago. Yeah, 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 I know. Just because it is all dry and flat and hard, that does not make it a fine ebony board. But for me, it does share a familial kinship in a leafy fashion with the tree of life that is rooted in deeply in my soul. I thought 
I should share it with you. At three years old, all of this is a little hard for you to understand right now. But one day, when your mother shows you this essay and that old bay leaf, you'll know that I was thinking of you, Amelia. The experience of connection and the suffering of when we lose contact with that experience is right at the heart of what we're concerned with here. Understanding equally what it is that transforms. So we've been looking at our experience, noticing what happens as it becomes more fluid. Reflecting on the the flow of oxygen that moves between us, between our very cells and bodies and the cells and bodies of the trees and the grasses around us. Noticing perhaps also that, you know, what we're made of is mostly space. We start to feel sometimes the solidity, the rigidity, the tightness softens, opens. And the very sense of the space of our body, you know, if all the apparently solid stuff was mushed all tightly together, it would only, you know, fit in about a teaspoon, if that much. It's all mostly space. And tiny little bits of almost nothing spinning around so fast, it appears to be solid. But it's space, and it's not that different than the space around us. It's not that different than the space around us. The very pores in our skin allow gases to emerge. Just as the very pores in our lungs draw gases back in to our body. What happens when we feel something so deeply that the very core of our being is touched? What's going on when something moves you? And it may be sweet or it might be poignant. But what's going on in that? When something that feels so intimate inside us is touched by something that appears to be outside us. It's telling us. It's telling us something. And when we're in our normal kind of busy and sort of hardened mode, it's like we're trying to not let life in. And that resisting of life creates, reinforces and solidifies this distance, this disconnect that's so grievously painful. As we soften, as we open, as we let it in, all of it, everything, as we start to let it in, it speaks to us of something that is more fundamentally true than that appearance of separation. How could we be affected by something if it was separate from us? How could we be affected by something if it was separate from us? We wouldn't be, by definition, that we are affected, that we arise in a way that we arise in every moment affected by so many things. It's telling us about the nature of what it is to be, what we are. 
And we are affected. We're not practicing meditation to not be affected. We're practicing meditation, we could say, to release our habitual resistance to being affected and thereby release the barrier to seeing what that mutual interactive process of affecting is pointing to, is revealing, is showing. Sometimes we notice the creatures around. We just sense their life. The soft, sort of gentleness of the rabbits on the lawn who don't seem to run away. And just one sometimes maybe contemplates and just think, gosh. You know, someone was saying to me, not on this retreat, but just recently, how just the sense came to them one day standing, looking at one of the rabbits. It was here at Guy House not so long ago. And, you know, just getting the sense, wow, you know, I'm not so different than that creature. Just something in the in the deeper knowing of the human heart recognizing something true about that. You know that in a certain way there goes me in another form. There goes what I am doing what it does when it's like that. And we can't really explain that in any you know useful way. You couldn't write an article for the sort of scientific journal that says, yeah, that's how it is, you know, the peer review thing wouldn't go well probably. <laughs> And yet that doesn't make it true. That doesn't make it not true or not real. Because we have a barometer within us, a compass or barometer, a, an organ we could say that's capable of measuring something, or not measuring, but recognizing something of what's true. And we can even feel in the sensitivity that comes that this, this world is, is a field of sensitivity of which we are part. And not just creatures, living things, trees and plants, but even what we might call inanimate. Those things that we imagine to be without life or sentience. We might sometimes at the same, as we might think of them that way, we might equally start to sense that maybe there is something alive about them. There's something of life in all of this. In all of this. I sometimes find myself reflecting upon the phenomena we call gravity. It's a rather ordinary thing we've all taken for granted ever since. Was it Isaac Newton who figured it out and said, Ah, oh, that's what's going on, gravity. And the you know, the scientific version of it says that objects with mass, i.e. some kind of substance to them, exert an attraction on other objects with mass that's in relationship to the amount of mass and the distance between them. That's kind of what gravity says. It's kind of an interesting way of explaining the fact that as far as we can tell, things are actually drawn to each other. That's basically what it is. Things are drawn to each other. Matter is drawn to matter. And, you know, 
gravity holds us on this planet. It's kind of fortunate, really, isn't it? Without that, the first thing we did, the first time we moved, we just ping off into space if gravity didn't exist. Of course, there'd have been a few problems before that. But, you know, just saying it stopped now, for instance, if we all stayed really still, it would be okay for a little while. But if we moved, just poof, off into space. So what is that? That we're somehow drawn to the earth and the earth is drawn to us. You know, in one sense, we could say, that's caring. That's the movement to come together with. And it's there in raw physical material that doesn't have an emotional process, as far as we can tell. It's like the nature of even molecules is to want to be with other molecules. How sweet. <laughs> really, they do. And the, what's called, that, that's known as the weak force, that thing that draws sort of objects bodies of mass together. The strong one is the one that holds the bits of the molecules to each other. Because they really want to be close to each other. And actually if you prize them apart, you know what happens, don't you? That's called an atomic explosion. There's that much energy going on in keeping those little fellas together. They really want to be close. So maybe it's not so surprising that we're drawn to be connected with each other. That something in us wants to find the truth of that connectedness that underlies the, the appearance of things. There's a poem that speaks to me very clearly and beautifully of how we long for, for this and how we might feel if we saw things a little differently. And just to explain it, because I'll give you the title at the end, I prefer to read that later, but it's obviously the artist Monet speaking to his doctor. Doctor, you say that there are no halos around the streetlights in Paris, and what I see is an aberration caused by old age and affliction. I tell you it has taken me all my life to arrive at the vision of gas lamps as angels, to soften and blur and finally banish the edges you regret I don't see, to learn that the line I called the horizon does not exist, and sky and water so long apart are the same state of being. Fifty-four years before I could not see the Rouen Cathedral is built of parallel shafts of sun, And now you want to restore my youthful errors? Fixed notions of top and bottom, the illusion of three-dimensional space, wisteria separate from the bridge it covers. What can I say to convince you that the houses of Parliament dissolve night after night to become the fluid dream of the Thames? I will not return to a universe of objects that do not know each other as if islands were not the lost children of one great continent. The world is flux, and light becomes what it touches, becomes water, lilies on water, above and below water, becomes lilac and mauve and yellow and white and cerulean lamps, small fists passing sunlight so quickly to one another that it would take long streaming hair inside my brush, (laughs) 
to catch it, to paint the speed of light, our weighted shapes, these verticals burn to mix with air and change our bones, skin, clothes to gases. Doctor, if only you could see how heaven pulls earth into its arms and how infinitely the heart expands to claim this world. Blue vapour without end. The poet is Liesel Mueller and the title is Monet Refuses the Operation. If we reflect on what it means to be what we are, what's at the very heart of this situation, this reality, this being human, what we can see is that there's a deep, a profound, and an ultimately unstoppable caring that arises at the very core of what it is to be what we are. There's a a wishing well for and a caring about so much and so deeply. And if we look at what actually happens is we see that that caring becomes associated with, connected to or identified with a partial or a limited sense of the totality of our experience the totality of life. And so we care about this, but not that. We care about ours, but not those. About us, but not them. In ways in which what happens is through the sense of identity and the solidification of a belief in separateness, we feel close to some and distant from others, whether we define that in terms of family, ethnic groups, religions, species, all these different ways in which we have a sense of what we are as opposed to what we're not. And when we don't examine this carefully, what happens is that caring for becomes limited to only that which we have determined or claimed or believed to be what we are. And the consequences of this are actually horrific. We see in the planet these days the impact of having come to the view in Western culture, not just the West, but coming from a lot of Western culture's orientation, that actually the natural world is something other than us. And we can do what we like with it and it won't affect us in the end. We're waking up slowly and painfully to the fact that what we have done and do to this world, we do to ourselves. Because we are not separate from it. And so, practice, we can understand this practice as an opening to a boundlessness of heart. An opening to this natural, innate, inherent caring that shows itself, as I said, even in the very molecules of existence wanting to connect, 
but this caring we have that we all know that we don't always find ourselves in contact with but we come back to again and again and again even when we feel like we don't care you know we care about that we care about even those times when we don't feel able to care and that's where the caring is it's still there just in a different form and that caring (coughs) has the potential to become freed from the limits our identifications with self and our ideas of separation, our conceiving of separation imposes upon its vast potential. The Buddha, in speaking of the practice of loving kindness, said that as a mother with her very life would protect her child, her only child, so too could we cherish all beings. And that sense of the image of, you know, the incredibly powerful and courageous caring in a, you know, what, what we would say is the archetypical mother-child. It's not always like that for us, of course. And it's not all of our experience, exactly. And yet that sense of that spirit, that, that caring for, that's embodied or expressed in that image, this is possible for us to know, to feel in the very heart of our being for all of life. To cherish all beings. So the tendency to identify with something that we call me, or this, or mine, or us, tends to limit that capacity of the heart. As we start to see and experientially know the unboundaried nature of experience, it's natural that the heart starts to flow, starts to open, starts to more and more fully encompass and you may have noticed this, you may have felt, even in the, the little groups and the, the sharing that many of you were doing just briefly this afternoon in the speaking meditation, just the sense of how, how much a sense of warmth and connection can just emerge from what might have been not necessarily that at all a few moments before, just in the making contact and the opening too, in the sensing and hearing and feeling another being. And this capacity, as we learn to let it flow, as we learn to let it move, it can touch what's needed to be touched. There's often the sense of, it's almost like there's a a competition, or like if I don't take care of me and mine, then me and mine won't get taken care of. So I can't be worrying about taking care of someone else, or something else. Or sometimes it can be more, I've got to be taking care of others, and it's actually not okay to take care of me. Or take care of mine. And either of those perspectives actually is bound up in this constructed perception that is untrue, that actually holds us as separate from. 
that sets us apart from each other and ourselves. When we aren't seeing in terms of the boundaried appearance of things, the appearance of separation, things appear separate, sure. But when we're not seeing in terms of that, there's a boundless quality that we can feel the truth of, that we can know the truth of for ourselves. And so, if we look at something maybe quite close to us, as a way of reflecting on this. See our hand, maybe? My hand, it's here. You can look at your own, maybe, if you like. Just take a moment to notice it. Interesting, huh? It's a hand. Yeah. Very clearly, fingers, those things that distinguish it, you know. Now, sometimes, of course... We hurt ourselves. You, you know what happens if you kick your foot and stub your toe, kick something hard with your foot? It hurts. And instinctive response is to rub the foot. Huh? We probably know that very well. Just want to rub the place foot. We look at the foot and it looks a bit different. You don't have to get your foot out, but you know it really looks like it's a very different thing. And the hand is rubbing the foot. Hmm. But if you really look at it a little more, where is the hand different and separate from the foot? In what way is the hand something different than the foot? We think the hand is rubbing the foot. Where does the hand stop? Where does the hand stop and the foot begin? There is no place where one stops and the other begins. And the hand rubs the foot. It's a natural response when the foot is sore. It doesn't think, I'm a great hand. I'm really being, you know, full of loving kindness here and compassion rubbing the foot. It's just a response. It's not being done to something else by something else. It's just what happens. And obviously, they're connected. They're connected. Sometimes the hand rubs the foot. Sometimes the hand gets to hang out in a warm pocket and the foot has to do all the work, you know, carrying your body around. It's a natural shift or change. And the foot doesn't say, that hand it just sits around in a pocket all day. <laughs> just walks it does its bit it does its bit you know in some ways we talk about a hand and a foot we could talk, it's a hand foot we talk about me and you over there we call you over here we call me or from where you're sitting it's the other way around What if there isn't a place where we stop and the other begins? But a field in which there's an interface of being touched, affected, carried, rubbed, moved. What if that's what's really going on here?
What if we were to sense, to know, really deeply, that although things appear as this and that, that ultimately this is not the fundamental truth of things. Shantideva, the uh, great poet and mystic who lived in India in the 6th century, he once said, just as we see these limbs as part of this body, can we not see all beings as simply limbs of embodied life? He said. When doing something on behalf of others, no amazement arises in me. Just as when feeding myself, I do not expect anything in return. It's like when we, from this place, make contact with the world out of kindness, out of compassion. There's a completing. There's a completeness. There's a wholeness in the truth, in the reality, in the very fabric of what's taking place that we start to recognize in the giving, in the receiving, in the being touched and touching. To know that what we are is simply what each other is. What all, in fact, are in just a different form. Another expression of something indivisible. Sometimes we take this world and imagine it to be somehow different than what we conceive of as the spiritual. And it's not. We imagine the spiritual as something to be discovered when we've somehow escaped from this world. But it's not. It is this what we're looking for. It's this. What we are. It's this. The this that has no that. It's just this. So can we be completely open? Can we allow ourselves? And all things to be here just as we and all things are. To embody this wakefulness this heartfulness, this presence. 
Ryokan says, Do you want to know what has been in my heart since before the beginning of time? Just this. Just this. So may we all, in our practice and in our lives, come to know and to embody the awakened heart that is just this. For our own welfare and liberation. For the welfare and liberation of all beings. So at the next uh, sitting, we'll just tell you about the schedule for tomorrow. So it's a good reason to come along. You wouldn't want to miss out. (coughs) Just also want to name at this point that some of you will be aware it's the uh, change from British summertime this evening. And so the clocks will be changed at some point. Um, 
And I'll say a bit more about that later, but just in case anyone's wondering what's happening with that, uh, it's happening. Um, And I'd also like to ask if there's someone who could ring the next bell, please. And if that... Is there someone who'd be happy to, who knows how to do the bell ringing? Thank you. Thank you. So, yes. Um, could you ring it at five minutes to nine, please? And we'll have the next sitting at nine o'clock. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.